Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brothers podcast. This is episode 61, recorded Friday, the 2nd of December, 2022. And today I have a preview for you of our upcoming third novel in the Tide Collar Chronicles, Rebel of Riddle and Woe, um, as well as a little talk afterwards about the challenges of writing a big cast, an ensemble cast, when you're stuck in first person. All right, so before we get into the chapter, which I will be playing the professional narration of, not me uh, doing it off the cuff, I do have to warn you that this book is full of spoilers. This is not a book that you can pick up and read as a standalone. Uh, it's the third book in the series, and if you haven't read books one and two, this will spoil them hard for you, basically from sentence number one. So uh, if that's your situation, maybe read them first and then listen to this. Uh, or if you're one of these awful people who doesn't care about all the work I do to not uh, keep you from being spoiled, then listen on. But uh, either ways, you've been warned. So without further ado, here is chapter one of book three in the Tidecaller Chronicles, Rebel of Riddle and Woe. One. Seven days from Duran. Well, slop, Anon says, staring at the broken wheel. It pretty well sums up how I feel, too. Three of the eight spokes are shattered, our formerly handsome iron-rimmed wheel now an egg-shaped lump on the polished rail of the ironway. We are a week out of Duran, traveling by wagon to escape notice. Far enough out, the traffic is light and the exchange yards few. The midday heat is oppressive, and striped flies buzz in the air around us, looking for a chance to bite. I knew there was a reason we got a deal on this cart, Anon mutters, pawing his vest for a clove twist. So what do we do now? I sigh. I guess we start walking. He glances at me. If you don't want to walk, I'm sure we can get a day to do it, or Isong. He's got the longest legs. It's not that, I say. It's... What is going on? Tewo asks, leaning his tanned head and shoulders from the wagon's canvas-covered bed. His eyes are bleary from sleep. He took second watch last night. Cart's beggared, Anon says, striking a match to light his twist. It's not beggared, I say. The spokes just broke. Ah, Tewo says, climbing from the cart to take a look. I do not know much of cartwheels, but I am sure it will be okay. Another caravan will come along the rails soon. We can buy a new wheel from them. It's a nice thought, but I'm not going to sit here all day hoping someone comes. The thing is, buy one? Anon snorts. Any Dura with half a brain is going to rob you blind this far from an exchange with your caravan broke down. But if you all can distract them... We're not stealing spokes, Anon, I cut in. Gaxna got me used to stealing for survival, back in Saray, and we couldn't have escaped Duran without Anon's skills but stealing from innocent people still roils my waters. What? They rob us or we rob them? It's the Daranese way. The skinny thief shrugs. Besides, you didn't seem too excited about walking. I sigh. I'm not. The next yard could be hours away on foot, and then we have to buy the things and get back and fix it. But it still sounds better than waiting around, hoping a caravan will come by with the parts we need. Tewo frowns. What is the hurry, Alethea? I slap at a fly. I have to remind myself that this is different for them, that as much as they're on board with helping me stop the floods and save Gaxna and kill my enemies, it isn't urgent for them the way it is for me. 
They didn't see the world end in a holy vision. They haven't felt only silence from their lover, where everyone else in my blood sight is a constant stream of emotion. A day feels like a long time, I say at last, when I've iced the churn inside enough not to snap at him. We don't know when the floods are coming, or our enemies for that matter. He puts a hand on my shoulder. We have a day at least, and no other options. All will be well. I appreciate the gesture, even if I don't share his faith. Anon nods up the rails. Looks like Akifte knows something we don't. Maybe he can help. I start at the sight of the massive Bamani man running back to us between the parallel iron rails, naked blade in hand. A hundred immediate worries blot out my longer-term ones. Was this sabotage? Did he see bandits up ahead? Or another pack of overseers sent from Saray to kill me? I have my own staff out, unconsciously taking Floodwater's rise, when he pounds up. What is it? I call out. Bandits? Overseers? I saw you were in trouble, he puffs out, pounding to a halt, eyes scanning the patchy jungle. Are we under attack? From which side? Anon blows a lazy lungful of smoke. Attack of a broken wheel. Akifte stares at him a moment, still tensed for battle, then his shoulders drop. Ah, well... I am sure we will overcome this too. I can't help feeling disappointed. Even if he was only running to warn us of bandits, I could have used an honest fight. Something I'm good at, instead of managing broken wagon wheels in the hinterlands. Did you see any caravans up there? I ask. Akifte has been ranging ahead, scouting for bandits or trouble. He seems to like the role, and he's good at it. A symptom of living under the constant threat of raids in Bamani, no doubt. None he says. No bandits. He eyes the cart, then me. What do we do? I roll my shoulders. This is something new for me. In the arena, I set myself up as the battle leader, and it was a role I felt comfortable with. I had the most training of anyone, and I wanted to be the one taking the most risk. Out here, I don't really have any special skills or training. Definitely less than people like Anon and Isong, who've actually traveled by wagon before. Still, in the last week, everyone started looking to me for answers. I guess because I'm the one with the most to lose. We walk, I guess, I say, though it probably means a full day wasted. Akifte frowns. With such a party as ours? No, we can carry this thing. You, me, Tewo, Isong, we have strength enough. It will make a great tale. Anon clears his throat. You forgot someone. The massive, tattooed man bellows out a laugh, clean and wholehearted. It's one of my favorite things about him. No, tiny man, I did not. Someone must still drive the cart, yes? I eye the next hill, then the sturdy wagon, heavy with 40,000 of the bull's ravas stuffed into a panel beneath the floor. I'm not sure we can make it that far. The Kifte looks almost hurt. Did we not defeat the bull of Duran in open combat? One gonad-shaped wheel cannot stand in our way. Ah, there, Isong, come and let us carry this measly wagon to the next exchange. I turn to find the tall man climbing down from the back, a sheaf of papers still in his hand. He's been helping me read the immersion chronicles, partially because the motion of the wagon makes me sick, but mostly because I'm afraid I'll miss something. My father's notes are dense, and I've never been much of a scholar. We could do that, he says slowly. Or we could just pull the boxing, distribute the spokes, and rework the fellows. I'm glad I'm not the only one staring at him. I hate it when he does this, Anon mutters. Say it again without the smug? 
Spread out the spokes, Isong says. Five of them are still in good shape. If we pull the broken ones and space out the solid ones evenly, we should be able to make it to the next exchange at least. And you can do this? Akifte asks, looking at the egg-shaped wheel like it's a strange carcass washed up on the beach. Isong shrugs. Why not? Anon looks amused, Akifte disappointed, and Tewo unsurprised. I just feel relieved. One less day wasted. One less day for Gaxna to die, or the floods to come, or my enemies to get ahead while we trundle across the continent. Every day I question whether it wouldn't have been better to just take a ship, even though Narimes will be expecting that, and probably has overseers in every port, waiting for me. Thank you, I say, and hold out a hand for the chronicles. One of us is reading them at any point in the day, and we've still only made it through the full text once in a week. My father was thorough. Find anything? Isong scrunches his chin. Not really. More mentions of the floods, some cryptic passages about uniting different ways, but nothing we can use. I take them, the sheafs of vellum soft in my hand. There has to be something here, some key to stopping the floods. My father was sure of it. Though a voice inside whispers, what's the point if we don't save Gaxna first? If she still can be saved. I poke again at her seed in my chest, dead for weeks now. But she's not dead. I know it. Other fears swim there too, like manta rays lurking on the bottom of my consciousness. The fear that whatever my dad found in the chronicles, Nerimes already knows about it. Or that he's found some way around it, with the strange magic he and Hiana share. Or that Gaxna is still alive, but after what I put her through, she wants nothing to do with me. She always said it wasn't worth it. And now here we are. My fingers tap out a rhythm against my thigh. They've been doing that lately, when I get stressed, which feels like a lot of the time. Hey, a voice comes, and I startle out of it. Anon's looking at me. The wheel's broken, not the canvas. I start. How long have I been standing here, staring at the roof of the wagon? Right, I, uh, I should start reading these papers. Isong already has the wheel halfway off, with Tewo and Akifte hovering nearby. You should relax is what you should do. Do you know today marks a week we've been on the road with no one trying to kill us or send us back to the arena? That deserves a clove twist at least. Everything deserves a clove twist to Anon. Still, he's right. I fold the papers and sit down next to him on the thick iron rails. What I need to do is meditate. Why don't you then, he asks, passing me a twist and leaning in so I can light it off his. I inhale clove smoke, smooth and rich and tingly against the back of my throat. That's the ironic thing. The times I need it most are the times I want to do it least. Sounds right, he says. Still, I saw you in the arena. I wouldn't think a broken wheel could lick you like this. I exhale. It's not the wheel. In the arena, I knew what to do. There were only two options, right? You bow down to Booker and accept his slop, or you kill yourself trying to get out. He blows smoke in a way that feels like agreement. I knew what to do even if everyone thought I was crazy, I go on. But out here? I don't know. Should we just go to the nearest port and deal with the overseers if they're there? If we do, are we going to Saray to try to kill my enemies and get Gaxna out, or do we need to find the rebel temple and try to come in with an army? Before any of that, am I wasting my time trying to find out how to stop the floods and all this nonsense? I shake the chronicles in my hands. Or does everything else need to wait on that, because nothing matters if we all drown? Or do I need one of the monastics to help me figure it out, because I'm getting nothing so far?
Anon nods sagely. I was wrong. You're going to need at least two clove twists. I bark a laugh despite it all, or maybe because of it all. You're nuts. You know that, Anon? How does all of this not get you down? The fact that we might all die tonight in a sudden flood we can't do anything to stop? He pulls at his clove. When he exhales, his expression is serious, something I've seen happen to him more often lately. You saw me in the arena. I was ready to die. Knew I was going to die. Was really only living so I could spit in my wife's face, in Duran's face, because that was the only thing left that I could do. But all this? Getting out? He shakes his head, gazing toward the vine-choked bluffs rising in the distance. This is like the biggest hit I've ever pulled. Getting more time. A second chance at life. So even if we die tonight, that's like seven more days than I thought I'd get. I pull in smoke, my heart warming because I know I had some part in that, even as that kind of gratitude feels an ocean away from where I am, swimming in worry and fear. I grind the clove out against the rail. Well, thank you for reminding me. I should have been dead a hundred times too. And thank you for the smoke. I think I can face this thing again. I pick up the papers. He shrugs. Always got more when you need them. We bought a whole bale, remember? I spend the next hour poring over my dad's crabbed writing, while Isong miraculously takes the wheel apart and rebuilds it with Akifte and Tewo's help. I find nothing in the text other than my own impatience, but Isong's fix works, and I'm relieved at least to get moving again. And when Anon insists that night that we all drink to celebrate our first week of freedom, I even managed to ignore my worries for a few hours and have some laughs around the fire with my allies. No, I think, as Anon starts in on another ridiculous story and Akifte searches his brain for one to top it. Not my allies. My friends. Tewo eventually steps out to take watch, and Anon and Akifte take the half-full bottle of rice wine, our third tonight, into the back of the wagon, where they usually sleep. Isong and I go back to our tent. I wasn't sure, at first, what to do with the tent we bought. It didn't feel right to sleep in it alone, especially with space so limited elsewhere. But even though we all crammed our pallets together for protection in the gay old tower, it feels different to lay my bed next to just one person. I'm also not stupid. Much as I grew up in a temple and have barely had a relationship with anyone outside of Gaxna, I knew how choosing one person for my tent might affect the rest of the group. But they all saw me kiss Isong that last day on the sands, and if it was going to be anyone, it was going to be him. Even if this still feels like betraying Gaxna, who's locked up in the pits under the Saray Temple right now. My heart tightens, if she's even alive. So even though we share a tent, Isong and I have kept our distance. Or I've kept it. Though every night, as my loneliness for Gaxna erodes into simple loneliness for touch, that distance gets smaller and smaller. Isong rolls over on his pallet, holding some papers up to the candlelight. What about this section, he asks, gesturing to one of the earliest recorded immersions, and my father's copious notes on them. Doesn't it seem like your father put special weight on them, like they meant something more to him? There are three or four in a row like this. I saw that, I say, messing with the flap letting in a deliciously cool breeze. But the only thing he really seems to say about them is they're not hallucinations, like he's just figuring that out, but not necessarily what any of them mean. Uniting the ways? That could mean anything. He sighs. Well, I might call it a night. I think the wine diluted any remaining ability to think on my part. 
I pursed my lips. I should do the same, but the days are long and frustrating, with me itching to read and the motion of the wagon keeping me from it. Think I'll stay up a while more. He nods, then hesitates. I know this is weird for him. We haven't talked about it. Haven't even really talked about what happened on the sands, even though we're obviously more than friends. Whatever that means. Thank you, I say, in the suddenly awkward silence after my words, for figuring out the wheel today. I don't know why, but I couldn't stand the thought of taking a whole day to fix it. You couldn't stand it because you know how important this is, he says, taking my hand. We sleep like that sometimes, fingers entwined, me torn between loving the warmth coming through our bond and hating myself for enjoying it while Gaxner rots somewhere alone. I sigh. I just wish I knew we were on the right path. He gives my hands a squeeze, and I feel another pulse of that heat. We are, or we're looking for it anyway. Better to search a day than run a week in the wrong direction, my master used to say. Well, thanks for searching with me, I say, still not sure what to do with the tension between us. Sometimes I wish he'd just kiss me if he's going to do it. Other times, I'm grateful he hasn't. I know you probably have people you want to see back in the Dale. He doesn't bite at the reference to the woman from his past. Maybe he feels as guilty about this as I do. The main Dale I need to see isn't there, he says instead. She's in Saray and helping you with this search seems like my best chance of paying her back for what she did to me, to my people. Yeolat. I nod, and things seem a little clearer again. This is one of the things I love about Isong. He doesn't say it, but I can hear, to the world, at the end of his speech, a thing Gaxna would never say. He cares about the world the way I do, about the people outside his immediate bubble, wants to help them, and the more time I spend away from the temple, the rarer I realize that is. Floods. The rarer I realize it is inside the temple. I clear my throat and give his hand a last squeeze before letting go. Well, if we're going to do that, I guess I need to keep reading. I see a flash of disappointment in his eyes when we lose touch, but I don't know what to do with that or with the echo of it in my own chest, so I ice it. On the hierarchy of desperate problems, my and Isong's feelings end up pretty low, even if it doesn't always feel like it. Deluge first, impossibly powerful enemies next, or Gaxna, I don't know. Isong rolls away from the lantern burning between us, and I turn back to my father's words. They are as dense as ever. Dense, but I feel a connection to him, pouring through his notes, like I'm peeking into a world I never got to explore while he was alive. His world. I will always feel hurt he chose this over me, but then I did the same thing to Gaxna so maybe I feel a kinship to him too. <laughs> How twisted is that? Every now and then, my name comes up in his notes. Here, it's just a single word, like a question. Alethea? It shocks me every time, popping out of some dense analysis. He was thinking about me. He saw my future in all of this, somewhere. I know now that he didn't just stick me into training to get rid of me after mom died. He had a purpose for it, saw something in the fact I had an ability I shouldn't. I still don't really know what that is. I don't think he meant me for the dais. But it makes me feel a little closer to him, even here, a thousand leagues away and a year after his death. An owl hoots in the dark, and my eyes catch on a phrase, quell the coming inundation. I read it again, starting at the beginning. It's not in my father's notes, but the record of the immersion itself. 
She spoke to me then of the source of all waters, of the eye that weeps them, born in the unity of ways, that it could quell the coming inundation. I frown, even as my heart skips a beat. Quell the inundation? That sounds an awful lot like what I'm trying to do. My eyes switch to my father's notes on the passage, sparser here than elsewhere. Feels essential, mirrored in entries 18, 213, 303. The monocle? Meaning of way unity. I flip to entry 18, keeping my finger on this one. Read the chronicle, read his notes. There, star mentioned here connected to monocle or reference to tied man. I frown. What is this monocle? It's nothing I ever heard of in the temple, and we had a whole semester on holy artifacts. But it seems like my father knew, enough that he didn't even need to describe it here. Entry 213 is total gibberish. The chronicles are like this sometimes, maybe the records of initiates who went in too soon. But the word monocle appears in the text, and there in the margins, my father's notes. Function as an antidote to deluge, but metaphor? See entry 18, 146. I flipped to 146, nothing about a monocle. But he said an antidote to deluge, like quell the inundation before. That's what I need, to stop the floods. I search for 303, hands shaking, miss the mark, go back. It's a short chronicle, just five sentences. Monk reports meeting grandfather in waters. Talk of apocalypse, fear of death. Monocle or eyepiece as saving grace. Numb hands, pale skin, signs of true immersion. Recommended for full seer. Apocalypse. Monocle. Saving grace? I almost slap Isong awake, but I need to be sure. The chronicles are full of talk of end times and apocalypses. No wonder they suppress them. But this is the first pattern I've noticed about a way to stop them. I go back to 11. It could quell the inundation. And my father's note feels essential. The monocle? I take a breath, icing whatever it is boiling in my chest. Excitement, desperation, I don't know what. Ice it enough to concentrate. My father knew about this monocle, whatever it is, mentioned it in 11 and 18, and the text itself names it in 213 and 303. Did he intentionally keep from explaining it in his notes? Was he worried even then that his enemies would read this? In the letter he left me, I pat my robes, where it lies tucked over my heart, the ink faded nearly to illegibility. He wrote about his enemies, knew they wanted to kill him, worried they would read his secrets through his blind. What did he say? The signs are there in the chronicles, but it has taken years of study to decipher them. A chill spreads through me, despite my racing heart. In the rest of the letter, he talked about the truth, but he wrote the signs in that part and mentioned years of study. Did he plant these signs here for me to discover? To point me to his real discoveries, but keep his enemies from them? That's it. It's the only reason I can think of for someone obsessed with the floods to not explain what a flood-stopping thing is in their notes. But the answers are there, if you read closely enough. Quell the inundation at its source. Antidote to deluge. Monocle as saving grace. Isong! I say, flopping a hand at him without looking, my eyes still glued to entry 303. Wake up! I think I found it. Alright, so I hope you enjoyed that. This was a really different book for me to write, because uh, it always starts off with Alethea alone, uh, which you'll understand the reasons for that if you've read books 1 and 2. 
But this one starts off with her with people. And um, I love these books that tell stories of a group and the group is its own character somehow. Like there's a dynamic between them and each one plays a role instead of a main character who's all her own, all alone having to fulfill all the roles. So that's kind of who Alethea has always been, but um, I'm planning book four right now. So I'm going back and reading the previous three uh, to remind myself what I wrote. Uh, what's it been like three or four years since I wrote the first one? Um, and I'm realizing that Alethea has kind of been on a journey to not be alone. She, When she starts off, she's a girl born with a man's magic, judged a heresy by all the people in the temple where she lives. And she's put there by this father who's super distant and doesn't tell her his reasons for putting her there. And so she's basically all alone. And everyone she knows, except for one person who's uh, kind of ignorant but still friendly, um, everyone else is set against her. And in the book, it's such a huge moment when she finds someone who's a real friend and a real ally. It changes her life. Um, and so book two is like the echoes of that as she realizes that she needs more allies if she's going to do what she does. Um, and I don't think it's too many spoilers to say that she's somewhat successful in that. Or I guess I don't have to worry about spoilers because you uh, theoretically have already read those books if you listen to this. So she gets the allies. And now in this book, I need to write her with those allies. And that's the ensemble story that I love writing. Except that I started writing the series in first person. And it's super awkward to switch points of view in the middle of a series, I think that would turn a lot of people off. So I have to continue only being in Alethea's head, but we have all these other heads that are in the story all the time. Um, and I'm used to reading ensemble stories where we jump around and we get a sense of what everybody's thinking and feeling and get the sense of the group from all the perspectives. Instead, I have to write it, had to write it only from one perspective, um, and that was a challenge at first. Until I realized that it's also kind of a strength because, I mean, this is how we go through life, right? We don't get to be in other people's heads. And so we're always wondering and we can't know for sure. And Alethea actually has a magical power to help her know for sure, which is water sight, where she can read people's thoughts. Um, but she's polite about not doing it most of the time. And so she can't know. And so for me, it was the perfect situation to uh, seed a little mystery into the characters themselves. A lot of these are people that we just barely met in book two who are now along with us for the journey. And uh, so they have cultures that we don't know about. They have uh, lives before they were all uh, in the prison in book two that we don't know about. We don't know how they got there. And they, of course, have their own goals and objectives. And I find that kind of thing so interesting that like we're all on this journey together and theoretically share the same goal, but there's actually a lot more going on behind the scenes. And that is definitely the situation in this book. So um, I realized it was a strength to be writing in first person because I don't have to dodge letting you in on those thoughts when we're in their head. I would just can't be in their head. So you can't know those thoughts. And so um, I think the biggest reveal of this book is a reveal of something we would know instantly if we were in the person's head. And there are a lot of other smaller ones that I had a lot of fun putting in and teasing and only giving you the clues that Alethea gets because we're only in her head until they finally come out. Um, and I think it's a lot more fun and a lot more satisfying that way than just kind of hopping into a head and uh, knowing what they think. They, you know, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that often that in a story we have access to everyone's thoughts, but uh, one of my favorite books uh, of my teens, and I think I still love it. It's been a while since I read it, Dune by Frank Herbert, is famously in everyone's head all the time. Like within a scene, he'll switch between three or four people. 
And one of the people's heads that he switches into early in the book is the guy who has been hired to assassinate the royal family that we're also in the heads of and kind of like de, fa de facto rooting for. And it's such a bold move on his part to just be like, here's the guy, here's his plan, instead of, you know, two thirds of the way through the book, oh my God, their family doctor is actually trying to kill him. What a shock. He just does that shock up front and then tries to make the story interesting with the questions of how and the ways that the assassin is actually internally tormented, which is awesome. Uh, it's not the way that I went. Uh, because I couldn't, because I'd already written books one and two. But um, I think that this way worked out really well, and I hope you enjoy it when you read the whole thing. We're going to have previews of another four or five chapters um, before the book actually comes out, so listen on for those. Um, if it's if you're listening in the future, they should already be there in the podcast feed, and I'll talk more afterwards about different things, uh, like I usually do with behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, if you're listening far in the future, hopefully there is a link to buy the book. Um, or to buy the other books. And if you're listening super far in the future, maybe they're part of an audio box set and you can just grab the whole thing for one low, low price. But in the meantime, if you're listening in the present, I uh, hope you enjoyed that. And as always, that this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. Till our next preview, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, visit www levijacobs.com or for a free audiobook only available to podcast listeners go to www.levijacobs.com slash free thanks for listening and read on